We turn this morning to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, and we read verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah, chapter 31, beginning at verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. Let's pray. Father, these are words that you have given to us. I pray that you would teach us, that you would open your word to us, that we would see so clearly that the new covenant is a better covenant based on better promises. And I pray that we would see that Jesus is clearly the fulfillment of that covenant, for it is in him alone that we find the forgiveness of sins. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip Riken has written a commentary on the book of Jeremiah. And he tells of how his mother was going to replace her 40-year-old faucet with a new one. And so she called the plumber and the, uh, the plumber told her, he said, I could give you a new one, but it wouldn't be as good as the old one. He said, they just don't make things like they used to. That's true in many ways, isn't it? Some of those things that have been made years ago have been made so much better than what's made today. You look at appliances, and you'll, you go to get a new appliance, and well, how long will this last? Well, they don't make them to last as long as they used to. So many things. The older seems to be a, a whole lot better than the newer. And so the text we just read makes a promise of something new. It is a new covenant. And we're told in Scripture that it is a better covenant than the old covenant. But if quality is a thing of the past, well, maybe we need to ask the question, is the new covenant just new and improved, or is it just new? (laughs) Is it really better than the old covenant? Jeremiah makes the claim And Scripture certainly bears that out, that this new covenant is not just new, it is is better. Based on better promises, based upon what God has done in His Son, Jesus. And so we can celebrate today that new and better covenant based upon what Christ has done for us. There's three reasons why the new covenant is better. Notice, first of all, the new covenant is better because the old covenant is impossible for sinners to obey. God established this old covenant with the people of Israel the day when Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. And what is very interesting, if you look back on that event, 
you will notice that it wasn't a good start for the people of Israel. In fact, it was a horrible beginning. Because Moses, he's up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And what is the first commandment? I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And what on earth are the people of Israel doing while Moses is up on the mountain? You remember, right? They are worshiping a golden calf. Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest, he tells them to give them the, all of their gold jewelry and he fashions this golden calf. And, and so Moses comes down from the mountain with this covenant that God has established and he hears this noise wondering what is going on. And here they are dancing around this golden calf. And so Moses has these two tablets of stone in his hand containing the Ten Commandments. What does he do? He takes them and he smashes them on the ground. Exodus chapter 32 verses 19 and 20 tells us that. How ironic. Could it be that the people of Israel hadn't even received that covenant yet, that law of Moses, and they were already breaking it. In the place of the living God, they were worshiping a golden calf. It did not start well, did it? <laughs> it did not start well at all. Now, if you read through Jeremiah's prophecy up until we get here to chapter uh, 31, you'll notice it didn't get any better. They started off bad and it didn't get any better. They continued to break God's commands over and over and over again, primarily with idolatry. They couldn't even get past the first commandment because they were worshiping Baal and Asherah and all kinds of false gods. Now, Christopher Wright says, up to now, at this point in Jeremiah's prophecy, the only way that Jeremiah had ever spoken of the covenant was to say that it was broken, shattered, lying in ruins as Jerusalem itself. And so in spite of the fact that they said, yes, we will obey. Yes, we will follow these commands. Yes, we will do what you have told us to do. They failed, and they failed miserably, didn't they? Now, it's a good thing that they had an intercessor. His name was Moses, right? Because he interceded on behalf of the people. He pleaded with God that God would spare them. And God answered his prayer. Moses said, remember the promise you gave to Abraham? Remember that, Lord? What are the nations going to say if you destroy your people? You took them out of Egypt, but you couldn't get them to the promised land? And so God mercifully answered that prayer. But as we come to our text, the people of Israel are now in Babylon. They had despised the covenant for so long. They had mocked the messengers of God that God had no choice but to discipline them. And what made it especially painful for the people of Israel is that there was no intercessor. There was no Moses now. In fact, God told Jeremiah not to plead for the people. Is that shocking? <laughs> it's true. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. As for you, God said to Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. 
and do not lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not plead with me, for I am not listening to you. Chapter 11, verse 14. So as for you, he says again, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. So God tells Jeremiah, I'm not listening to you, and I'm not listening to them. There was no intercessor like there was in the days of Moses. Now, Jeremiah makes it pretty clear that the problem in this covenant relationship was not with the Lord. Okay, It was a covenant that he had made with his people. And that required two parties, right? The problem was not with the Lord. Let's just settle that for sure. He had established a marriage relationship with them. In fact, in verse 32, the Lord says that he was a husband to them. And so you have that picture that is seen all throughout Scripture that God is the husband, His people were the bride. In the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom, we are the bride. So God says, I established a marriage relationship with you. But what the Lord says in verse 32 is that they broke the covenant. Since the time of Moses, they continually demonstrated that no matter what they said about obeying the commands of God, they did not. They broke that covenant. The writer of Hebrews, we read from Hebrews chapter 8, echoes this fact right before he quotes from this very text in Jeremiah. In Hebrews 8 verse 7 he says, For if that first covenant had been free of fault, no circumstances would have been sought for a second. For in finding fault with the people... He says, then he quotes from Jeremiah, that I am going to establish a new covenant. So the fault was not with God, as if there was something wrong with His law. His law was perfect. The problem was with the people. And that's why God said there is a new covenant needed. And God was going to establish that new covenant. They couldn't keep the law. And guess what? Neither can you, and neither can I. So we can look at the people of Israel and say, what was wrong with them? Why didn't they obey this covenant? Look at us. Do we get beyond the first commandment? I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Have you ever put anything before the Lord? I have. I've broken that command. And you go through all the commandments... If we were in a court of law, right, having broken all those commands, there, there wouldn't be any, any hope for us. So, so we're no different than the people of Israel. And what the law does, the law has a way of showing us that we need a Savior. In fact, that's why Paul says the law was given, right? The law was given so that, Paul says in Romans 3, that every mouth may be closed... And all the world may become accountable before God, because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So that's what the law does. It shows us our need for a Savior. The law is like a mirror. Did you look at a mirror this morning? Did you say... 
Good morning, Lord? Or did you say, Good Lord, it's morning? Huh? Look at my face. The mirror shows us exactly what we are. A camera taking a picture of you shows you exactly what you are. That's why I do not like looking at my driver's license. I look at that and I say, Is that me? Is that what I really look like? The mirror doesn't lie. The camera doesn't lie. The law of God doesn't lie. It shows us exactly what we are, warts and all, right? Exactly what we are. Someone told me this morning that there is a church that he drove by on the way here that has the picture of the pastor on the sign. I told him, don't ever let that happen here. Because no one would come. They'd say, whoa, man, that, that guy, I think I'll drive by and go somewhere else. <laughs> the law shows us exactly what we are. And the law then revealed to the people of Israel that they had sinned. They had fallen short of the glory of God. And there was no human intercessor there. There was no Moses there. So what were they going to do? Was there any hope for them? Well, there was nothing they could do about it, but the good news is that God did something about it, didn't He? He said, I'm going to make a new covenant. This old covenant, you could not keep. There's no problem with the covenant. The problem was with you. So I'm going to make a new covenant. And that's what we find in our text. Then verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day that I took them out of Egypt, because they broke that. I was a husband to them, but they broke that covenant. So what the people of Israel could not do, God would do for them. And the same is true for us, for what we cannot do. We cannot obey the law of God and somehow make ourselves righteous before God. God provided the solution in that new covenant in the coming of Jesus. That's mercy, isn't it? That's His grace that He pours out upon us in Jesus. And that's why the book of Hebrews says this new covenant is a better one. <laughs> Certainly better for us, right? Because there's hope. Because it's impossible for us to obey the old covenants. Notice the second thing. The new covenant is better because the old covenant can't change the heart. Moses had much to say about the heart in his sermons recorded in Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verse 5, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Chapter 11, verse 18 of Deuteronomy, You shall therefore take these words of mine to heart, and you shall tie them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. So the old covenant is similar to the new covenant in terms of, of the heart, but when you examine what God says about the heart in the new covenant, there's a significant difference. Listen, verse 33. For this is the covenant 
which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Christopher Wright says, what seems to be new here is that God not only asks for obedience from the heart, as in Deuteronomy 6, 6, but promises that He Himself will implant it there. And whereas Deuteronomy 6, 6 simply asks that the law should be upon your heart, God promises to put His law within them. Now that's a change, isn't it? And that's a significant change. The prophet Ezekiel, Chapter 36, here's what he says. I will give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And bring it about that you walk in my statutes. And are careful to follow my commandments. So what God commands in the Old Covenant, He provides in the New Covenant. Three times in these verses, God says, This is what I will do. What I will do. This was something the people of Israel needed desperately. Because guess what? They had heart trouble. They had bad heart trouble. Their hearts were hard like stone, Ezekiel says. And Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved on the tablet of their hearts. What a picture. One author says this metaphor speaks of blatant, incorrigible, unbending refusal to change their sinful ways. Israel's willful rebellion is, as we might say, set in concrete. <laughs> when something's set in concrete, what do you do? You can change that. That's what their hearts were like, hardened like concrete, like stone. Could God ever change people like that? It almost seems hopeless. But God is able to change, right? People like that. Romans 8 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So in that new covenant, God gives you a new heart. And He puts His Spirit within you. <laughs> takes away that heart of stone and, and, and gives you a heart of flesh. That's God's work. And it is a wonderful thing when that takes place in our lives. Now if you look at how the Lord would change His people, you see something interesting here. Verse 34 says, They will not teach again each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Now, he asked the question, didn't the people of Israel already know the Lord? 
And they had his law, they had his commands, they had the sacrifices, they went to the temple. Didn't they know the Lord as if they had never heard of him? Well, what does it really mean to know the Lord? When the Lord says that they will all know me, this isn't a a cognitive thing. This isn't an intellectual thing. This isn't what we sometimes call head knowledge, right? You know what head knowledge is? You just know the fact. You know about Jesus. You know that He died. And maybe you even agree with, with that. The people of Israel had that, didn't they? They had the law. They had the prophets. They knew in that sense. But knowing the Lord in a scriptural, life-changing way is much different. And you can see that in, in how Jeremiah describes the people of Israel before the Lord would bring that change in their lives. He repeatedly says they didn't know the Lord. Chapter, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8, listen to this. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law, the scribes, did not know me. Imagine that. These men that handled the word of God on a regular basis, God said, they didn't know me. Chapter 4, verse 22, he says, my people are foolish. They do not know me. They are skillful at doing evil, but they don't know how to do good. Chapter 9, verse 3, They bend their tongues like bows, lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. This is describing the people of Israel. And God is saying, they don't know me. (laughs) They do not know me. So even though they had an intellectual knowledge of the Lord, they didn't really know Him because their lives said otherwise. And there are people, aren't there? There are people in our day today, they are religious people. They are church-going people. They would say that they know the Lord, but their life says otherwise. Because if you know Jesus as your Savior, what does the Scripture say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That's the change that Jesus brings. It's not just a head knowledge where I can say, yeah, I know this Bible verse or I know this. Has Jesus changed your heart? Has He given you a new heart? Or like my dad would say, has He given you new spiritual taste buds where you desire the things of God? You long to be in His Word and prayer and fellowship with God's people because God has done something in your heart to change you. The Old Covenant couldn't change the heart. Only Jesus can change the heart. I remember many years ago, there was a lady in the community in which we lived who was taken to the hospital on a snowmobile, mind you, because it was a horrible storm. 27 inches of snow in a matter of a couple days. You could not... Our street, you could not, the plows couldn't even plow it. They had to go with a payload or like this, back and forth, because the plow was just so much snow. She couldn't get to the hospital, but by a snowmobile. She had heart trouble, and she ended up getting a heart transplant. 
And lo and behold, I had read about this in the news. Her and her family shows up at our church. And so I went and visited their family after they had visited our church. And never in my life was I able to share Ezekiel 36 with someone who had gotten a new heart. (laughs) A heart transplant. And I said to her, you know, isn't it wonderful what God has done for you to give you a new heart? A transplant heart. But I said, there's something even more wonderful than that. And I went to Ezekiel 36 where it says that God would remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. I will give you a new heart and I'll put my spirit within you. You need a new heart more than you need a transplant. You need a a living relationship with Jesus. That old covenant could not do that. But when Jesus came... He dwells in us. He sends His Spirit to live in us. And He changes us. And the change that takes place is a wonderful change, isn't it? A new covenant based on better promises. Notice thirdly, the new covenant is better because the old covenant can't forgive sins. The thing that stood in the way of Israel's relationship with God ought to be clear by now. It was their sin. They had broken the commands of God. They had despised His Word. They were worshiping false gods. And in Babylon, they were paying the price for it. And one author asked the question, Could the God who had declared that He had no alternative but to punish them for their sin now turn and forgive them? You know what the answer to that is? A resounding yes. A wonderful yes. Notice at the end of verse 34, the end of our text, he says, the Lord says, For I will forgive their wrongdoing. And notice this, And their sin I will no longer remember. That's gospel, isn't it? Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says the same thing again. I, I alone am the one who wipes out your wrongdoings for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Now, what does that mean? Is this talking about God has some kind of divine amnesia, right? I don't remember. No, He remembers everything. He is a perfect God. God does not remember their sins in the sense that He doesn't hold their sins against them. He forgives them, and when He forgives them, their sins are gone. (laughs) I remember as a child, we go to Bible camp. One of the songs we sang was, Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Now my soul is free, and in my heart's a song. Some of you are are nodding. You know what it is, right? Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I will praise eternally, or I will sing eternally, praise God. Remember how it ends? My sins are G-O-N-E, gone, right? Buried in the deepest sea. That's a scriptural principle. Picture. Micah. Chapter 7, he says he will drown their sins in the depths of the sea. 
And as one man says, he puts up a no fishing sign, right? They're gone, forever gone. And I found a verse this past week that was really quite interesting. Jeremiah 50, verse 20. Listen to this. In those days, and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the wrongdoings of Israel, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found. (laughs) Why? For I will forgive those whom I leave as a remnant. (laughs) Isn't that an interesting picture? Search will be made. Where are these sins? Can't find them. They'll be gone because they were forgiven. In fact, the New Testament word for forgive is literally to send away. To send away. Just like the uh, Day of Atonement, remember? You had those two goats. There was the one goat that was sacrificed. And then the other goat, the priest would lay his hands on the goat, confess the sins over the goat, and he would send the goat out into the wilderness. And you remember what they call that goat. The scapegoat. That's where you get that term. And so imagine that. They're, they're watching this, the priest on the Day of Atonement confessing over that goat the sins of the nation. And then the goat goes off. Walks away. And finally the goat is out of sight. Isn't that a great picture of our sins? Because of Jesus? They're gone. They're gone. So let me ask you, are there sins that you've committed that you'd like to forget? Boy, there's some things that I've done that I'd like to forget. Like my father-in-law said, uh, there are some dumb things that I've done. And uh, there's some dumb things I've done too. Like just... So we remember, right? Things we're ashamed of. Any of you have things that you're ashamed of? That you've done that you, you wouldn't want us to know? Absolutely. But just think, when, when they're forgiven, they're gone. They're gone. He remembers them no more. I remember visiting an older lady many years ago. And she was bothered by something she had done as a teenager. She was about 90 years old. And I was able to share with her that God does not remember them. He, God does not hold them against you. Those sins are gone, buried in the deepest sea. Satan was trying to take her joy away. And I was able to remind her of what Jesus did, right? Oh, she said, that's good news. <laughs> that is such, such good news. I want you to notice that the way our text ends here, you see that forgiveness is the very foundation of the new covenant. The last phrase begins with the little word for, F-O-R, The Lord says, For I will forgive their wrongdoings, and their sin I will remember no more. One author says the word for indicates that everything above this bottom line stands upon it as a foundation. All the newness is possible because God has forgiven. 
God has broken the vicious cycle of sin and punishment. It is this broken cycle that permits Israel to begin again at a different place with new possibility. So the very basis of the new covenant is the forgiveness of sin. Because that's what stands between us and God, right? It's our sin. And that sin is forgiven. So where do we find that forgiveness? We need to end on this. Jesus tells us, right? Listen to what he says in Matthew 26, verse 27. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. What covenant? Not the old one, but the new one. The new one. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The cross of Jesus, that's the only place where we can find forgiveness. Because it was at the cross that Jesus paid the price for our sins. He died in our place. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus. And He took it all. He paid it all for us on the cross. And when He died, what did He say? It is finished. Right? If something is finished, you can't add anything to it. If someone did a wonderful painting and you said, well, wait, 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 let me, let me just, let me just add something to that. If I did that, I would have ruined it. It was done. It was finished. There's nothing else you can add. And what Jesus did on the cross is completely sufficient for your salvation. No good works added to somehow merit God's favor. It is given freely and graciously to those who would come with with empty hands and say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I have no righteousness of my own. I humbly bow at your feet and acknowledge that what you did for me on the cross is sufficient for my salvation. There was a missionary that went to visit a little Irish boy in the hospital. And he came to understand his need of a Savior. And he'd been brought up knowing that Jesus died on the cross for his sins, but he thought that he had to at least do something along with what Christ did to save him. And one morning the missionary called upon him again and and, and walked into the room and his face was just aglow with joy. And so the missionary asked why he was so joyful. And he said, Oh, missus, I always knew that Jesus was necessary, but I never knew until yesterday that he was enough. <laughs> I always knew Jesus was necessary. I heard that from a long time ago that he died on the cross. But I didn't know until yesterday that Jesus is enough. Aren't you glad that He's enough? (laughs) He's all we need. His life and death and resurrection purchased our salvation. He is all that we need. Jesus is enough. And when you put your trust in Jesus, that's what you'll experience. That Jesus is enough. As the hymn writer said, Jesus paid it all. 
All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it as white as snow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've washed our sins as white as snow. You suffered in our place. You took upon yourself the wrath that we deserve because of our disobedience to the law of God. And you paid it all. And Lord, help us to rejoice in that today, to embrace that good news of salvation, that what you have done for us is fully sufficient to forgive us and save us and give us eternal life. These things we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.